Welcome to After Awakening. Here we discuss enlightenment and the greater spiritual reality with meditation masters and spiritual teachers. Hello everybody. Welcome to our episode of After Awakening with Lung P. Sander Kamadamo. Lung P, how are you doing today? Satu, Satu. I'm fine. It's uh, getting a bit peaceful outside. There's some, it's getting a little cooler. It's in the evening here. In the east, in Afferden, which is a little village, quite nice people, quite kind. And quiet, correct? Quiet yes. town. Quiet. quiet. Fantastic. Former Catholic Church. Formerly. We're here with Long P. Sander. Venerable Sander has been ordained as a Buddhist monk since 2005. So that's that's 16 years now at the at Wat Pra Dhammakaya, the Dhammakaya temple in, in Thailand. He graduated with a master's from Radboud University in industrial organizational psychology. The way Long P. Sander and I know each other through the first 90-day meditation retreat that I did in, in Thailand, it was initially in out on the outskirts of Bangkok and then up into the mountains in Chiang Mai. And I was very young at the time. I was 19. It was the first long meditation retreat that I've done. And it was a very difficult retreat for me. And Lung P. Sander was such a gracious teacher and he knew so much about Dhamma and, and Buddhism. And he just had a lot of wisdom even now, but at the time back then he, he did as well. And that was eight, eight years ago or so. So I was, yeah, I was, was a long was a while ago, nine years, yeah, I think. Yeah. Not exactly. And you were still so knowledgeable and helpful back then. So, <laughs> so today I just wanted to get into your life story a bit, what your journey was to, to becoming a monk. And then I wanted to address some questions about the Dhammakaya meditation technique and, and the temple as well. I want to play devil's advocate with some of the controversies and, and accusations that have been thrown at, at the temple. And I, I know you've been a monk for a very long time and you're quite knowledgeable on all these affairs. So I'm excited to, to really hear your story and uh, to hear the information that, that you have. When you were in university, getting a master's in, in industrial organizational psychology, that's a career path that doesn't exactly look like it will transition into be, becoming a Buddhist monk and ascetic and really just leaving the world. How, how did that happen? How did you go from you're on a track to being a HR supervisor to, okay, I'm leaving all of this. I'm becoming a monk. What, what happened? Yeah. I have to say before I, I encountered Buddhism, I was actually studying art. When I encountered Buddhism, that actually led me to psychology. And you're right. Uh, I know psychology is a bit of a different it's like you're really aiming for a career, but it was more like I wanted to know everything about the common person. I didn't, I was less interested in, in, in people with illnesses, but still I, I love all kinds of psychology. Anyway, for me, this happened when I was actually still in, in high school. I already started to read about Buddhism. And I remember there was this book from, it's called The Hero of a Thousand, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Which was a bit of a, a fashion book in, in the, I think in the eighties, but it was, it was like my mother wanted to, you know, learn, have me learn about many things. So she bought this book for me. And then I, there was a lot of, about Buddhism in that book. Uh, 
And later on, I, I, I also started to find old books that my mother once read in the time when in the hippie times in the 70s and about like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the, the old one, not the modern one. These were books that explained how you could, by meditation, learn not only yourself and become a more peaceful person, but also be able to understand life and death. So this was very fascinating to me. And then I read books about the Dalai Lama, who at that time wasn't really as famous as he is now, as well known. And uh, yeah, he explained about meditation. He wrote about that and then meditation started to fascinate me. So I started with that. I started a meditation practice uh, about 15 minutes a day or something like that, 15. And I actually learned about a practice that I could, I focused on a little dot on the wall. <laughs> I read about that somewhere and it didn't really work. I couldn't really learn the practice in a peaceful and comfortable way. So I started to look for a teacher and I went to look at several places uh, where I could learn meditation. And eventually I ended up with Dhammakaya. And then when I was, became more involved, I became more interested in working for the temple as a volunteer. And as I was working for the temple as a volunteer for about uh, 20 months, then I decided to, that I wanted to become a monk. Wow. So you had stayed in Thailand for an entire 20 months before you ordained? Actually not. I stayed in Thailand for about eight months and then another year in Belgium in the temple there. Yeah. What was that decision like for you? Was it, did you just wake up one day and you knew it was time to ordain or, and did you have any intention that you would do it for this long or did you just want to see what it was like? Yeah, I get the question often from why what made you decide to become a monk but for me it doesn't feel like that it feels more like why did you decide to embrace buddhism and then as a natural result you want to do this full time so for me the main step the main change in my life was when i started to become fascinated and wanted to practice buddhism so i read as much as i could about it which wasn't as much as it is today it's, it was hard to find good books in those days about Buddhism. And yeah, I really started to practice it. And also people around me started to say that I was changing. I, I didn't really know how to practice it in detail, but I tried to really get to understand the, the Buddhist uh, practice and theory. And then what really fascinated me was the emphasis on how the mind works and that it's about human beings, you and me, people like me. How do you know suffering and overcome suffering. It's not about we have to devote our lives to this higher intelligence or that higher intelligence. It, it wasn't based on abstract principles. It was based on the experience here and now. And yeah, also the fact, the emphasis on ethical, training yourself ethically and in, in good virtue and good character, that it was really practical. And that really appealed to me. It really felt like this was about, this was a philosophy that really made sense. You might call it a religion, but whatever the case, it made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I remember in MMC, you had shared a story about how you were in, in university and someone had asked you why you had believed why you believe in nirvana in, in enlightenment. What was your answer to that question? 
And how did you handle that at the time when you're moving in this specific direction and you had quite a few people that thought it was weird. Spirituality and meditation is very popular now, but when you were getting into it, it was not. Now all the CEOs do it, but. Back then, especially in Holland, it was still like, if you were meditating, you were probably also hugging trees or something. It was really uh, that kind of thing. It was I remember there was a minister, not a Christian minister, but a minister as in ministry of the government. She was actually very much interested in, very much into Tibetan Buddhism at the time. And she was laughed about it and mocked about it all the time. If you would do that now as well, Buddhism is okay. It wasn't really considered a real religion by many people. They thought it was a sort of new age thing or something like that. And I remember I wrote an article in, 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 in a journal from the university, from the university's church, actually, to be exact. And that was about very, had a very religious tone in it. It was about how to devote your life to goodness and to really become a good person. And also about the impermanence of life and the basic tenets of Buddhism were in there, but it was really about my, also about my own life. And I remember one of the Christian, he was actually a, a monk or monastic, but he was also the priest of that church. He said, I used to think that it was a hobby, that Buddhism of yours. But now you really convinced me that it's a real thing. <laughs> I remember that very well. Wow. Of course, I was convinced I was doing the right thing already, but it just surprised me that he came with that. Most of the time, people didn't really understand it and thought I was either some form of Christian or something because I dressed up neatly and all that. Most people in psychology, they, they, they look a little bit sloppy sometimes. It's a free, it's more liberal style. And because I dre dressed up a little neatly, I was sometimes understood to be like a person from the province, probably a little bit Christian type or something. So most people didn't even know that I was Buddhist. But when people ask me, why don't you drink? Then I would say, I don't drink because of my religious beliefs. I'm a Buddhist. And then that would sometimes lead to interesting conversations, which were good, positive. And I think I'm lucky in the sense that Holland is a very open country and tolerant. We, at that time, Holland maybe didn't know so much about Buddhism, but still people were open to it. And they were afraid of the commitment that I'd taken. That kind of scared them off. But they were okay with the basic philosophy. How was shifting from a scientific worldview that you had with your education in Holland. How was navigating that when you had gone to Thailand, become a monk, and there's this entire Buddhist cosmology and many ideas that are considered unscientific. Was that an issue for you at the start or did you not have a problem with that? Yeah, I don't think I was very raised very scientific, but my parents were more or less atheist. I mean, they weren't really against Christianity, but they were not religious. Both of them were in the previous times in the seventies, they were uh, communist actually, mm. but they later on, they, they developed their view. They, they changed their views and communism wasn't really a thing anymore in Holland. But anyway, to make a long story short, it was actually, yeah, it was, it, there were some things that it was like the belief in karma. I could connect with that. But the belief in the in the in the afterlife and all that was a little odd for me, reincarnation and all that. I think 
I had I was lucky in the sense that I met Lompin Nicolas, who was one of my teachers at that time, and he said, "If there's anything just that you don't believe, just you just give it the benefit of the doubt." He was open in that sense. Wow. He said, "This is the Buddhist way. We we do not discard anything. We just give it the benefit of the doubt." And if you don't believe it yet, then it's okay. He was open in that sense. And yeah, other Thai monks as well. Other Thai monks, other monks that some of the Thai monks, they also, they told me, don't worry about it. It's the, the practice that counts and you can give yourself some time to reconsider things. At a certain point, I became, there's a lot of things that I have to do with faith. And eventually the faith that you have in Buddhism, it arises from the practice. This is working. So if this is working, there must be some somebody who came up with this who's pretty intelligent. And then you eventually you start to, it's not just, it's not a fairy story. There's a real Buddha there. Uh, there's a real uh, person there who really attained something. You start to, to really believe it. That's how it went in my case. And so I don't, yeah, I don't feel that was, a big struggle though. I think it was at a certain point because I didn't know yet that those feelings and those doubts are very common mm. and very well accepted in, in the Buddhist past. Even for Thai monks, they accept, well, you have come from a very different culture and different beliefs as normal. They were okay with that. So uh, there's no articles of faith in Buddhism. You, faith is more like a sort of result of your practice. And you can't just decide on faith. Yeah, I'm going to have a lot of faith today. You can't do that. It's not like that. It's not like you you switch it on or something. I'm very fascinated by your understanding and grasp of Buddhist history and, and Buddhist modernism in Thailand. One of our, our earlier private conversations was discussing how the current meditation practices and techniques that are popular in Thailand, that was the result of a Buddhist modernist revolution or, or transition. Could you talk about that a bit, how, how we've come to the current state of, of Theravada in, in Thailand? As you will probably discuss in more detail with Dr. Kate Crosby in the later episode, there is a certain moment very important to the history of Buddhism, especially Theravada Buddhism, and to uh, some extent or to a high extent also in, in Japanese Buddhism. There's this period when Buddhism had to negotiate with the modern age. It had to find a new way to present itself to be still be relevant. And uh, in order to do that for Buddhism, especially in Thailand, it had to come up with a way that it looked modern. And there was a tendency at that time in Thailand, and I'm talking about the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, to really want to present itself as modern. And so that Western nations wouldn't be inclined to, to colonize Thailand. So that this was a result of a long process. And it culminated in the reform of Buddhism. Now that took place in Sri Lanka much earlier. But in Thailand, that took place during the 20th century mostly. And in the city tradition, this was mostly it was translated as in many ways but one of the ways was that there was a standard meditation practice which today we know as in the west as vipassana but in asia is more better known by the word burmese method or satipatthana method 
Now that was a standard method and it was issued like that from the 40s or 50s. In Thailand, this is going to be the standard meditation. You all have to go and do this. And uh, this, this was a, just an example. There were many ways in which uh, Buddhism was, uh, they tried to really modernize. And sometimes it's called, the, some scholars, they call it the self-colonization project of Thailand. They wanted to modernize so that Western nations wouldn't have the feeling this country needs help. <laughs> Which, which which was where it also happened to many other countries like Turkey or many other Asian countries. Yeah. During this Buddhist modernist period or during this transition, Longpu was the founder of the, the rediscoverer of the Dhammakaya meditation technique, was living and, and teaching this method. What was it like revealing this knowledge and teaching a new discovery in in the Buddhist Dharma at the time, because when, when anyone makes a new discovery and begins to propagate it, it, it upsets the standing scholastic and, and monastic community. How did that unfold? And do you think that's related to the story of the Dhammakaya temple moving into the future? Yes and no. It was obvious that Lumpu did come up with many renovations. It is obvious now to us today. Uh, that the Lompu was uh, very, uh, he really made a lot of renovations to meditation at that time. But that is only relevant, that is very uh, natural for us to understand it that way right now. But in those days, Lompu, we have to understand he used most of the language of meditation as it was known in those days, especially from the Visuddhimakkha. He used a lot of that language and he even used a few terms from the Satipatthana Sutta so as to present his meditation form in a similar fashion as other traditions. So he wasn't really like, uh, I'm the new person here, but I'm the new, I have a, nov I have a new thing here. That was not really how he presented it. But the, the new thing was the word Dhammakaya, which was not used for meditation methods before that time, as far as we know. And yeah, there, there is, there is, so there were some, there's, there is some, there was some resistance that some people felt that he was, yeah, that he was not following the modern reforms. He wasn't practicing the Burmese method, for example. And so he, he did attempt to modernize the education system in the local area. So he wasn't against modernism. The opposite, he used uh, a lot of modern methods of management, in fact, in fact, which makes you wonder where he learned those things in those days. But yeah, he was a very modern person in the sense, but he, his meditation method really was rooted in the ancient practices which were not part of the reform. And what were those techniques? Before he started to teach Dhammakaya meditation, he actually had practiced several techniques, including the, the breathing meditation, which we know today as the Sati, sorry, the Anapanasati uh, breathing meditation. He also practiced uh, some <clears throat> techniques in which you imagine a sphere of light outside of yourself. <clears throat> And he also practiced some other techniques in which you follow certain, certain positions in the body, but different from what he would teach later. 
So it's like he, he combined a lot of methods, the sphere which he imagined previously outside of himself, he then brought inside of himself and he used the bases which were taught in several techniques at that time. But he put those bases along the breath, which the was not common before the pathway of the breath. So it's like he combined all, all of, at least three and maybe even more methods into one. And then he came up with this wonderful new thing that wasn't known, probably wasn't known, we don't know that, but is very unlikely to have been known before that, was that he discovered that there is this pathway within. If you combine it in the right way, as I mentioned before, then, <clears throat> then there is actually a, <clears throat> a pathway within in which your mind then travels inside your, your body. And then he would, yeah, that was his, his discovery of the, the middle way that he, he would say that this is a different meaning of the middle way as, a, as an inner path that exists within. And so he actually came then with the teaching of the inner bodies or the inner, the supramundane states that actually existed inside the, the human self. And based on this discovery of these inner bodies and the, the Dhammakaya bodies, Long Fu pronounced that there was a true self. And could you talk about this notion of true self and no self, and specifically in Theravada Buddhism? There's a tendency, mainly a theme in, in the Burmese tradition and in the forest tradition that, that there's absolutely, <laughs> there's absolutely no self, but you think otherwise, what are your, what's your opinion and understanding of this? So there's two things here. First of all, that the Buddha taught that there is no self, that is actually uh, debated. It's a contentious issue. It's not uh, that everyone believes that. It's, there, is, there is no clear evidence that the Buddha actually taught that there is no self at all. Because normally the way the Buddha would teach, he would emphasize experience, the experience of the individual. What you're experiencing now, and he would say what you perceive, what you reflect on, all the different parts of your human experience, of your experience, the aggregates, as we call them, or the kanta, we, they are all not self because they are subject to change. They are not really satisfactory. They're not really giving us happiness. When you think about a car, you want a big car, and then you think about it, that is not self. Why? Because the car, you don't really own it. So all your thoughts and how they connect to the world, they are not really ourselves. So the, and the matter, the, the rupa, which it connected to in the world, it's not really ourselves. It's not really ours. That is all a shared belief. That is also what Dhammakaya teaches, what Dhammakaya temple teaches and what Lumpua Patnam taught. And to be honest, most of the time in many Actually, many discourses, I wouldn't say most of the time, but in many places, Lumpu talks about the not-self a lot, that you have to let go because of the not, because this is not-self, that is not-self. It's not like he, he, he doesn't think that's important. That's very important. But then he says something that is very, that is a little farther. <laughs> he then continues by saying that the Buddha, he taught not-self, he taught, he taught impermanence and he taught suffering. 
uh, that there is an you know, unsatisfactory nature in the world, in the things in the world. In order for us to find the true self, the permanent and the true happiness. Now, the, the part where he talks about permanence and true happiness, that is not so controversial. The, the part where he talks about the true self, that is very, that was in those days, it was a little controversial and it's controversial now. But he would simply, so he would, most of the time he was talking a lot about not self. It's not like he was uh, going against all the tenets of, of Buddhism, but he added, he said that this is something that the Buddha actually wanted us to discover. Now you can ask the question, if the Buddha really taught that, then why isn't it mentioned in the Buddhist text? Exactly. Well, the, the thing is that the Buddha would normally emphasize, describe nirvana in negative terms. So we'd say there's only two things, two things that I've been teaching. Formerly and now I teach only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. And the end of suffering is what we have come to understand as the path to nirvana and the actual attainment of nirvana. He, he, he recognized that, but the Buddha, he talked about the nature of nirvana, mostly in negative terms. So he would say that it's not this, it's not that, it's the unborn, it's the unaging or, or some similar term and terminology. And basically what Lompu was saying is that the Buddha didn't mention it because he wanted people to find it for themselves. And that is what he literally says, actually. But Lompu did believe that this was what the Buddha actually had intended for us to attain, that there is a true self. Yeah, it's, it's like he, the Buddha wanted people not to grasp to this true self as it was taught in, in, in Brahman or ancient Hindu tradition as this true self or this, this great self to which a human, this great God or a true God or a true self with, with, with the true self will then unite with the true God or something like that. That entire philosophy was not really what he wanted to teach. To put it philosophically, he didn't want to teach what was out there. He wanted to, to, to have people stick to their experience. He was teaching a way to salvation or inner liberation, not what's out there. He wasn't teaching metaphysics. So there was right. no real point to start to describe Nirvana. It's his, like that wasn't his attention. So he simply, he simply, the Buddha, he simply stick to what was there in our experience right now. And we then aim for not suffering. But Lombui interpreted, this is actually the true self. There is a true self out. There is a true self that you can find. It's not out there, but mm -hmm. inside. So Lombui's writings are translated into English, correct? Only Vasudhivacha yes. volume one and two? That's right. Okay. So from your understanding of Thai and being able to read what, what Lompu wrote directly, did he describe Nibbana? He did, but he did in the context of teaching meditation to his students. So he would tell that 
if you come to this stage of meditation, you should see, you should try to explore this or explore that. He would explain this in chapters. Some of these chapters were written by his students. Some of them were, were transcribed from his talks, but they were all written or written down under his supervision. So this is really his work. And then, yeah, there is, it's difficult to understand intellectually. So at some, there is actually some times when he says that, that it's not like you would understand it like this, or it's not, it's like he, it's, it's very difficult to understand intellectually. And I don't think that it was intended that way. I think it was really intended, like you have a guideline to practice. So if you're in meditation and you're seeing this now, then you move to that, you move to that or something like that. And so that most of the time, what he would be teaching to the people and to the monks at large, not in the context of teaching meditation, but in the context of a general introduction to meditation or teaching Buddhist doctrine, Buddhist theory, he would simply say there is the, the there is a nirvana. We can attain it through the supermundane states inside of us or, or this Nirvana is, is part of that. Yeah. If the uh, heavenly realms in Buddhist cosmology and, and in the universe are a part of samsara, we could see that as being within the matrix and attaining Nibbana, Nirvana is you're out of the matrix. What was Lungpu's description and understanding of this? And is it at all similar to the Buddha fields or Buddha lands that are described in the Mahayana and Vajrayana texts? Well, um, you're talking about the Buddha fields as in uh, uh, Amitabha or something like that, Amitabha, the Amitabha Buddha or something similar? Yeah, the, the, there's descriptions in the Mahayana canon of Buddhas existing in this pure dimension where their hmm. disciples exist around them. Was it, is this at all similar to what is in, in Longpu's descriptions of Nibbana? You could say there is some similarity. He just did describe Nirvana as a sort of place where you could, where the Buddha would sit and there would be many people sitting there. But the idea that you could, as it exists in many forms of Mahayana Buddhism, especially in the Pure Land tradition, that you could devote yourself to one of these places, one of the pure lands, and then you could get a shortcut in that way to Nirvana. He wouldn't teach that. No. But he, he simply taught that the Nirvana is not an abstract. It's not, it, it, it is complicated, but he, wouldn't, he would describe it in a certain way. Like you said, there is actually a Buddha sitting somewhere. But there's other passages in which he makes it clear that it's beyond our intellectual comprehension. So it's, it's kind of, you don't know exactly what he means. Right. Absolutely. But to make this kind of discovery and, and to be propagating it, saying the center of the body is the pathway to the actual super mundane Nibbana as dimension and reality, that's, would you say that's still something that most Theravadan scholars do not agree or sit well with? Yeah, that's very controversial. But we have to realize that there's many things that many teachers in the forest tradition or in other traditions have said that do not agree with theory. 
Mm, okay. I mean, there, there have been Ajans in the first edition describing Nirvana as well, which doesn't really match with what is, what you know, it's not, it cannot be backed up with with theory. So in the ancient times, in the old times, there was this, well, in the time of Lompu, in fact, it was common for a Buddhist teacher to sometimes describe things which were his experience which were part of the patibat, patipati, not the pariyati. Kind of saying, if you want to know more, practice like me. Practice every day. Don't be lazy. That was the point. It wasn't the point to start an intellectual debate about the nature of nirvana. Because that, that is pariyati. And when pariyati, when it came to pariyati, the theory, the, the learning, the, the text, Pumpu was very straightforward and he, he cited texts all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he, he, he went against the theory of Buddhism or something. It's just that he, at certain points in time, he would say, this is a meditation experience that I'm teaching you. If you want to know more, practice like I do. And that is not very different from what many Ajans did in the past. They would sometimes say things or they would, some would even cry when they said they experienced this or that, not cry like sad, but cry from joy. And, and then not because this or that, you, this is the theory or something. It's just that uh, there was something there and you, you have to really practice to get there. And it's worthwhile. It's the reason why we've ordained. Don't uh, just sit there and, and do nothing. We have to really make an effort. This is the style of the ancient Thai masters, there was this, this distinguished between uh, I teach, you teach the theory, and then you also mention a few things of the practice. If you practice more and more, you will also experience uh, this or that. And that wasn't really an issue, uh, but it became an issue later on. In the present day, there is a lot of intellectual debate. Yeah. But at the time, there was some controversy, but not much in the time of Lompu. Okay, so now I'm putting on the, the devil's advocate hat to to address some of the, the accusations and concerns that have been launched at, at the temple, really. One of them, for example, is that our temple, the Dhammakaya temple is overly materialistic and that their aim of people generating Kama, so that they can be reborn in, in the fourth heaven to further their cultivation. This is not... Theravada Buddhism. This is not in accordance with the text. What is your answer to that? Yeah, there's, so there's two things here. First of all, there is what Lompat, Machiyo, and Lompat Tattativo. So for those outsiders who are listening to these videos, those are our teachers, right? So there is who received the teaching from Lompu, Wapaknam, that we previously mentioned. And then he passed on this teaching to Lompat Machio and Lompat Tattivo, who are our teachers now these days. And both of them explain the Buddhist teaching in a certain way. And then there is a culture in the temple which arises at a certain point. And also there is a Bangkok culture. We're talking about a, a city which is its own country. This is where most of Thailand lives. And so there is, of course, an element of materialism because everywhere in Bangkok, there is materialism. You cannot find any corner where there is not materialism in Bangkok, which is probably the logical effect of 
getting everyone in one single city in the country. I mean, no other country has that to that extent, or hardly any other country. So there is that. Okay, I'm not saying that Bangkok people are wrong or something. I'm just saying this is part of what Bangkok is. But it's very clear that if we look at what our teachers have taught and what they have practiced, there's nothing to do with materialism. In fact, uh, most of our lay people who come to our temple for years, they know this very well. They will say, okay, I'd like to give because I would like to attain, I would develop paramis, develop good qualities. And as a part of that, I would also like to be financially stable, financially wealthy, but uh, that is only a tool. In the words of Lompata Machio, everything in the world, all matter, is, a sh is shared property. There is actually, when you look at it from really deeply, there is no individual property in this world because when you die, you have to leave it behind. So all uh, property is just a tool, in his words, is just a tool to develop goodness. That is what he said. So when somebody comes to the temple for a while, they will understand that and they will look at all forms of wealth as tools. But there is a lot of teachings in Buddhism that really point out that the Buddha did really support and want people to be wealthy. But there was some people who chose a more meditative path, some lay people. We have lay teachers in the time of the Buddha. There were some lay teachers who did not choose to become a wealthy patron or a wealthy benefactor of Buddhism. But the general, most of the students with, of the Buddha, he uh, did encourage to be generous and to practice generosity and to use their wealth for, to improve Buddhism. But so there is some element of materialism in that sense that in Buddhism, there is an idea that wealth is not wrong per se. It's not wrong in itself. And in that sense, Buddhism is uh, stronger than other, I think, many other religions. This is seen as a tool, but you have to, as the Buddha says, uh, you have to learn to use it in the right way by using it for your, for not only for your own benefit, but most importantly, for the benefit of society, for example, charity, giving to charity, giving to your friends and family and giving to a good cause as well, a religious cause in this context of his teaching. So he would teach that you have to be generous using your wealth in a generous way, not keep it for yourself or just... And also the other thing is that you have to learn that one day you're going to have to let go of this wealth. So there is no real, no real idea that you have to, that you honor wealth per se, you honor wealth in itself, which would, that there may be people who come to our temple, since our temple has many people from Bangkok, there's going to be a few that misunderstand this and they will maybe come to the temple and brag or something, but these people are everywhere. There's always people who are more materialist than others, but... Uh, in generally, and which you can see in the culture of both our, our teachers and those who have been practicing coming for the temple for a long time. The important thing is that you learn to practice, to give. 
And uh, if you give a little, then you give a little. If you give more, then you give more. You practice in order to be joyous in the giving. Even as a monk in our temple, we encourage every monk to whatever gift you have been given to share. And that is a, always a great thing to do. And it's a practice. If somebody doesn't do that, it's frowned upon. Somebody is in the habit of being stingy or something. But at the same time, we cannot simply say that people who are poor or, or something or disadvantaged, uh, that they have always, that they deserve that because they have done, didn't do good karma in the past or something. There is no sense of deserving in the law of karma. It's just something that happens and we don't know what people have done in the past and we cannot make any judgments about that. There's this idea that that's propagated in the Thai media that if you're poor, you can't come to the Dhammakaya temple. And I've been there many times and there's no security guard at the front gate checking <laughs> how much money you have. <laughs> no. Everyone, everyone's allowed into the temple. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah that's no problem. Yeah. So there's a general concept, a, bit, a little bit romantic in, in Thailand, that a, a temple, to be a real Buddhist temple, it must be old and, and decrypt, what do you call it, uh, defunctional, or it must be falling apart, and the, the, the abbot must be walking with a walking stick, and preferably be more older than 70 years, and it's a bit of a romantic idea. And, and you know, in Thailand, uh, most journalists, they are not above, they are, most of them are not above 30 years old. So. And what about this aim of, of Dhammakaya to, to pursue merits and to accrue perfections, qualities in this life, and then be reborn in a heavenly realm where you can continue to pursue, pursue the Dhamma? What's your, your take on that not being in accordance with Buddhism? Because as far as I, I can see, that's exactly what Shakyamuni, Sakyamuni, the Buddha, did in his previous lifetimes as a bodhisattva. Bodhisattva, he pr pursued perfections and, and accrued merits. Why is it Theravada takes this point of view that if our path is towards arahantship and, and enlightenment and in accordance with the scriptures, that's not what we're supposed to be doing? Both paths exist. They don't bite each other. They don't go against. So there is a path where you develop good qualities in the process of becoming enlightened. And uh, in order to do that, you need to do goodness, like generosity, but also keeping the precepts and meditating and learning the Dhamma, learning the Buddhist teachings. There's this process in which you try to upgrade your life in every lifetime. There is that teaching known in Buddhism. The Buddha even says that if you if you want to be born in heaven, then you have to get you have to practice both generosity, a moral life, and meditation, because you take care of every part of your character in that way. And the life you have lived, that is how you die. We die the life we lived. I think you can remember that quote from the retreat, right, <laughs> in Thailand. Yeah, so that's that's certainly part of Buddhism. Yeah, that's certainly part. But there is a tendency in modern Buddhism, which I believe it was Cousins, a British scholar who has recently passed away, who said that, I don't know, I think he recently passed away, yes, I'm, I'm pretty sure of that, who said that he spoke about automatism, like a tendency in, in, in Thai Buddhism to only emphasize awakening and uh, 
And this is, of course, also part of uh, modernist Buddhism to, to emphasize the reflection, the intellectual and the emphasis on awakening so that there is a very unique identity, which is different from Christianity or something like that. It's a modern interpretation. But if you look at traditional Buddhism as it had always been, karma and doing good karma has always been very important. There's Western people coming to Thai temples, and I'm not just talking about Dhammakaya, any Thai temple, many Thai temples. And they look down on those Thai people, you know, Thai, Thai people don't get anything about meditation. They just talk about merit. But that's, that's all part of the process. Merit, one meaning of merit is purification. You're doing good in order to purify yourself inside out, to be a better person, to be a more beautiful person inside. And eventually then meditation also needs to be part of that, of course. But if somebody does only part of the path, it's still good. It's still better than nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. And then there are many... Just countless references in the suit to merit and, and its value. One of them in particular is that if a, if you find a monk, I believe, or if you encounter a monk who's been, who's just exited or come out of a deep state of meditation, a jhana, and you offer him food or alms, then the merit of that offering is higher. And if it was a monk who's been in meditation for seven days, some extraordinary amount of time like that, just seated there, then the merit is even is even greater. So is, is, is that accurate? This is in the scriptures, correct? Yeah, that's true. But I would have to uh, add to that, that it was a person who was actually in a seven-day continuous meditation. So that's for 24 hours, seven days. Yes. This is still a practice in some parts of Thailand when some, but if you say that, maybe people will think I'm crazy. <laughs> So uh, anyway, uh, it's it's okay. Uh, we could. There's many guests that talk about all kinds of unusual things on this show. So, so right. don't don't, and, don't and, worry and about that. another thing is that the gift was also difficult. So the person giving the gift in most of these example stories was also difficult to give that gift. For example, a part of his food, and he didn't have much food, and he gave part of his own food, something like that. Many Buddhist stories about generosity are, in fact, about poor people. And we know from, from the Buddhist text that the Venerable Mahakasapa was in the habit of receiving mostly from poor people, because in that way, he wouldn't get attached to the honor that was bestowed upon him when he would receive gifts from the rich. So it's not, I'm not saying that Buddhist is, is against wealth, but it, there's also a place for people who have who are facing hardship a absolutely and not to address some of the accusations and scandals that have plagued the Dhammakaya temple how did all this begin how did the media campaign and the media smear actually start and and why there's a there's an external cause and an internal cause the internal cause is that our temple in in the previous times we used to be a little bit, we were a little bit naive. We didn't know much what was what people thought outside of our temple. There was too much of a cleft between, too much of a space between the people in the temple and how they were thinking and the people outside the temple. I don't think the, we were ever a cult or something. That's not, certainly not the case. We were a very healthy and well-functioning temple within the Thai uh, 
monastic establishment, a type monastic uh, community. But there, there have been times when our temple was a little bit more isolated than now. And that may have been part why we didn't understand the concerns of the people outside the temple. That is one thing. And part of the problem is that we didn't explain who we were, where we believed in, what we believed in. Part of that problem. So we didn't always engage in the debate. When people criticize you, we always, in the, especially in the 90s, I was there at the end of the 90s, at least, when our temples still had the philosophy when we are criticized, when the temple is criticized, don't respond, don't fight back, but also don't run away, which is one of the ideas that Lumpu Wapaknam taught. But I, we don't know exactly what, <laughs> if he meant that, maybe in some cases you do need to respond. Whatever the case, that was the internal cause. There was, there's always an internal, there is some part, I'm not saying that our temple is perfect in every sense, if that was the case, we wouldn't need to teach anyone because everyone was enlightened. The other cause is external. At the time when we were criticized, when we came on a lot of criticism and scrutiny was during the late 90s. At that time, Asia was facing one of the biggest crises it has ever seen, the 1997 financial crisis. And we were very happily building a Chedia building an, an enormous monument in the middle of the financial crisis. Made of pure gold. Which is, which is exactly the style. You can't say he wasn't behind that or people were just coming up with their own ideas. No, he, he, that's his style. When you are in problems, you solve it with goodness. You, you do, when you are facing hardship, you give more. It, it, it sounds contradictory, but that's how Aulampata Machayo thinks. But of course, people outside, they didn't get it. Why do you need to build such a huge building to, to in the middle of the financial crisis, people are getting fired every day. So he didn't, that was a misunderstanding there. And also our temple grows very quickly. And part of that process is that we, we are noticeable. There's a proverb uh, in, in Dutch language, high trees, they catch more wind. And we were becoming very high trees in the late 90s. We had uh, people from the, both the royalty and the influential figures from, the, from Thai politics and other parts of Thai society who came to our temple regularly we were becoming very noticeable. So at that time, there was some criticism. Another thing is that our temple, in many ways, you could say is a Theravana tradition-based temple using Mahayana methods to spread Buddhism, which doesn't fit in with Thailand as it, right. is in the, as it mostly is. In Thai people, most of Thai people, they prefer a temple which is very quiet, has few people, and preferably, uh, it looks old, and as I mentioned. But but Damakai looks very modern. It is a huge organization. It looks <laughs> really, it yeah, looks more like a, like a complex than a temple. And this is appealing to many people in Bangkok, but to outside of Bangkok, maybe sometimes they don't understand. So it's a lot of it is about appearance and preconceptions about Buddhism should be like. For example, if you would, I'm pretty sure that if you would transplant Dhammakaya 
to theoretically, of course, to Taiwan, you would be quite unnoticeable. Taiwan, there is many huge Buddhist organizations which are very modern and have all sorts of engagement in society, and that is very fairly common there. It's also a country which is a lot more democratic than Thailand, by the way, but that may also be related to it. So when our temple is a very large organization like this, that's going to be noticeable. It's going to attract both critics and people who praise the temple. And But if, yeah, if you want to get more concrete, you have to look at what the, what the criticism is. But of course, there is criticism when you have a large uh, temple like that. Are you willing to get into the kind of political scandals behind it? And Yeah, sure. That's possible, but it's a long time ago. But yeah, it's possible. Sure. What happened in that instance? And how is it related to this recent military junta where the members of the Thai Piku Council were arrested? Well, you could say there's two things. There is the temple and there is the rest of the monastic establishment. The recent, the recent, uh, in recent times, there were several uh, monks from the monastic establishment in Thailand arrested. And uh, eventually, most of them were released again. But they were detained for about, about a little over a year, I think, without a due process. So that's also... That's <laughs> Thailand 101 for you. Yeah, that happened, but that didn't really relate to our temple directly. But it there is a there's a connection in that these monks were perceived as has been well documented by journalists and scholars, were especially journalists, they were perceived as being red, so supportive of pro-democracy movements in Thailand. And that's why they were arrested. They were not perceived as supporting the government, the Thai junta at that time. So that is the, the, the reason why those monks were arrested. That was, that was a, a few years ago. Yeah. But the, uh, I think that was 2017, if I'm not mistaken, or either 2017 or 18. Yeah. In, I, I remember it was in the month May. And then our temple actually was is a slightly different case. Our temple was is part of the problem is of course also that our temple is tends to attract pro democracy followers, but our temple in fact is usually doesn't express its opinion very much. There's actually a lot of different opinions. Even when you talk about democracy versus uh, traditional uh, Thai politics, that is not really, our temple doesn't really have a clear opinion about that, whether official or unofficial. You find people who are both okay with some level of uh, government, for example, half democratic, half not democratic, like like, uh, Singapore, for example, not fully. There's a lot of Thai Monks, Thai people are okay with that. Also in our temple. But then there are also people in our temple who are very progressive in their views. So it's both. But the thing that we became noticeable about is that we attracted the attention of Thaksin Chinawatra at that time. He became involved in an education project, the temple. 
And he actually talked, gave his opinion about the project. He praised the project in public, coming to our temple in public, not to join a ceremony or of some kind, but to praise this education project. So this was uh, perceived as, uh, that's why our temple, after the Taksin was overthrown and uh, there was a military junta, then of course we were like the enemy number one because we had the actual man talking inside of our temple in front of television <laughs> about how education and meditation could be combined or something like that. Uh, he, he talked about the similar teams. Yeah, we became the target. Okay, that's not a difficult... Natural consequence, yeah. Kind of a natural consequence. And so that's really... I don't think you could say that our temple is wretched or something like that. Because there is a lot that many people in our temple wouldn't be comfortable with supporting as it come, when it comes to the wretched movement, uh, which took place. Which There's a lot of differences between Damakai and wretched. So that's politics for you. But the, the short story is that when you are big, you become a source of opinion. You become a place where people come together. Even those who are not part of the temple, not part of the staff of the temple, not part of the monks, but they come to the temple to talk. If you have uh, 10 Bangkok businessmen coming to the temple to talk, that's not a big thing. But if there are 100 and 200 and all of them seem to be pro-democracy oriented, <laughs> then you like you don't shoot the messenger. We don't really support that. But then these people, there's a lot of people coming to our temple who are progressive in their thoughts. So we were perceived as, as, as a supporting pro-democracy movement in Thailand and supporting the red shirt movement. But the most clear thing that they really hated or didn't like about us, the military junta, and still don't, is the fact that Taksin came to our temple. Mm. He, in fact, he had a meeting. He, had a, he organized one of his political conferences in our temple. Now, to be honest, to, be, to give you the full story, very few monks and staff of our temple joined the meeting. There were just a few people making sure that everything ran smoothly. We just gave the venue, it was the assembly hall. The people came to the assembly, we cleaned it for them and then they came there, that's it. But yeah, that kind of puts you in as a political target to, to, to say Taksin is welcome to have his political conference here in, in our temple, you know, <laughs> yeah, that was, but like I said, our temple is very courageous. It does uh, a lot of things that are uh, sometimes considered politically dangerous, right. not because we are politically biased or have any favors or fears, but we are simply um, working with a lot of people. And at a certain point, you become noticeable. If you are also a wealthy temple, then you also become noticeable. Now, I, think no, I, sh I should say that our temple's wealth is, is heavily overstated. I really have the experience for a long time already in the temple that every dime is negotiated all the time. So uh, if there's any wealth, then it's mostly the supporters who come to the temple and want to support something. But as soon as the... As the money becomes part of the temple's uh, yeah, um, uh, finances, the people who manage that, 
then it's you cannot easily uh, use it for anything without careful consideration. Uh, it's, it's always a lot of discussion about how we uh, use the money that people have given with their devotion, how we use it in the most careful manner. So that's the culture that I grew up with as a monk. And I've never seen anything else. How many monks and nuns are there? Most of the time we have about a thousand uh, and a little bit more, 1,300, 1,200, if you count the novices more. And there is a lot of female, yeah, female staff, Upasika, who are living more or less as nuns. And they also number in the thousand. Yeah. That is not even talking about the huge number of volunteers who come right. uh, and do not live in the temple, but they come to the temple. And uh, this is a village. And that's and, what I've come to know our, our temple as a village where you live. Yeah, the, absolutely. The recent scandal or the, the recent situation with the abbot having to go into hiding and the raid, the raid on, on the temple in, in 2017, where the DSI, which is the equivalent to the FBI in, in the United States, showed up and, and pretty much raided the temple. What was the reason behind all of this? Because it got quite a lot of media attention at the time, even here in the United States. Uh, yeah, so that was uh, mostly part of the detoxination program that, that the military junta wanted to, to do. So they really wanted to get rid of our temple. There, was, there were some donations given to our temple and they didn't check out. So the origin of those donations, there were many donations, but all from the same person, but many. These donations, they didn't check out. So he, it turned out he had used, he'd embezzled, he had embezzled money and then gave it to our temple. He also gave it to other causes, by the way. He was a very generous wow. man. Yeah, he was a very generous man. But the the thing is that those that money wasn't legally obtained. So the the government at that time they dismissed us because they didn't charge us for that because we were the recipient, and the money had already been spent on buildings. And there was. Uh, we, yeah, that we weren't charged with anything because the damage had already been done, the money had already been stolen, and it was already given and had already been spent. But as soon as the junta came into power, they revived the case. And uh, this is a process that they have done in many cases. They revived certain cases, they picked certain cases to to get to be able to control somebody politically. And so they picked this case and they said, uh, you had the intention, that's what they said to us, to launder the money. And their evidence was that the person who had given those donations was on a first name basis with our abbot. Now, that is not very much of evidence. And the problem with that evidence that it was also obtained in prison. But okay, if wow. we put that aside, then still it's a bit, it's not a very clear case. But they said, okay, that's enough to charge our abbot with laundering money. There must have been a personal relation with the man who gave the donation. And he probably, after the money was laundered, he then would come to receive that money again from our temple and, and use it for something legal, something like that. That was the theory. That has never really been investigated, but it was enough for them to charge our abbot. 
with the consequence that our abbot has not been in public since that time. Would you go as far as to say that the DSI has taken tactical intelligence measures against the temple? No, I don't have any evidence that happened. But uh, And I don't know if that happened, uh, frankly. I've never heard of it. But there have been cases when journalists would, I wouldn't say journal journalists, but uh, paparazzi sent uh, people to, to come and report on our temple. So they, these people would sometimes even uh, join activities or even become a volunteer full-time and then report to paparazzi. But that's just paparazzi. It's not a big thing. It's just, okay. It's not a sort of a main mainstream journalism, and it happened a long time ago, mostly in the 90s. Apart from that, I don't think the junta ever did that kind of things. But there's one case where they put a, a car, put a car next to a temple, and actually put some drugs in it, and then claimed that it was our the car of the temple. But it wasn't in the temple, so there was a few paparazzi newspapers that picked up on it, but it they couldn't get any evidence so it, it it dropped it was only one it was in the news on one day <laughs> and then it you know it was just yeah it was an old trick and they couldn't do that anymore because thailand has now developed a lot more than in previous times so that would that didn't work but that kind of things they did do yeah but they, i don't think they actually infiltrated our temple mm. but it, you know, even then, I'm pretty sure that our abbot would just say, let them see it. Let them see it. <laughs> he actually literally said that when the, when paparazzi newspapers sent people to to find damaging information on our temple uh, during the late 90s. The, our abbot actually said, let them see. It. I know this because one of those people who was uh, on a payroll by a paparazzi newspaper uh, tabloid was later he confessed to me during a discussion that he was previously working for a uh, paparazzi uh, like that but later he changed his mind and he very much regretted what he had done and uh, oh. at that time he was ordained oh <laughs> But yeah, you know, he was just ordained temporarily as a sort of how it goes in Thai Buddhism, a three-month uh, training as a monk and then people disrobe. It's a sort of novice, actually. But um, yeah, he, he did confess that. He, he only confessed it when we were having like a real discussion monks among each other and we were really getting to know each other. We were monks, so we weren't drunk. But if people in the world want to have a comparison, it's like we are man speaking amongst each other and, and telling each other stories. So we were doing that in the way monastics do that. So very politely and without alcohol. And then he said, you did, I have some secret that I would like to share because a lot of people were telling very private things. And then he said, I would like to, actually, I've been on a payroll from uh, by a paparazzi newspaper. Actually, there isn't such a word in Thai, but we, we you can understand from the context. And so it was a newspaper that, that actually uh, gave him money to find damaging information about a temple. So these kind of things really happen in Thailand. It's not just fairy tales. But uh, yeah, our abbot, he would just say, yeah, come and see. Now, there's another thing which kind of connects with what you were saying, that some people compare our situation, especially people from America who do not know Thailand very well, some people. They compare it with an organization called WECO or something. Don't know the exact name, a religious oh, organization. Oh, WECO? 
Waco, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, not comparable. Well, that's very not different comparable. because yeah, we were we are not isolated like a cult group or something. We are very much in the midst of the monastic establishment even today after all the accusations of the it's like in Holland all the temples they connect with each other talk with each other there's there's continuous conversation there's not uh, we are not an isolated religious group and yeah there is no violence we we actually we are faced with a lot of violence during the last times when the junta actually um, tried to get our abbot they came in with with many with a task force consisting of both police and army and uh, these were about 50 to 100 people or something. And they came in and then uh, we, our abbot actually taught everyone to chant the first teaching of the Buddha. Because it's a nice chant and it keeps you in meditation. It keeps you in a meditative mood. So we just chanted this all the time. And then when they came, then we, what are you going to do to a chanting crowd? We are, which are chanting very nice Buddhist texts. You can't, you can't just hit them or something. So that, that helped a lot. So we never engaged into violence. We've always diffused it rather. I don't know if this is... Uh, answering your question. <laughs> oh, I, oh it, it definitely is. And with, there's a particular monk who is very close. I can't even recall his name, but there was a particular monk who was really close with the abbot. And he ended up, he was a monk for many years at a temple. He, he left and became a university professor. And after he disrobed and just disparaged the temple entirely. Do you think that sort of thing is a natural occurrence? Or do you think that people can get compromised by political actors? Yeah, it's possible that some people are living in the temple may get into, we are not enlightened. Sometimes things happen, maybe sometimes conflicts ask, cause people to leave the monkhood, uh, may be possible. But we have to understand that in this case, the person that you're mentioning now, who was previously a monk in our temple, he was actually, he was, he was paid or he was at least, we don't know exactly how much and to what extent he was paid by the junta, but there is, he was actually put into, uh, onto the team of, of a religious innovation committee of the military junta in, in about 2014 or something, when the military junta took over Thailand. He was actually part of that team. So he was very much wow. directly in connection with the, so there's some journalists who do not know that information. So they just interview him and ask him what he thinks about our temple. He was actually, he was given the assignment to, to find a way to, to uh, renovate Buddhism more according to the lines of the military junta. So part of that was removing all traces from uh, Taksin, Chinawat, and uh, our temple had some traces. <laughs> because he came to our temple, as I mentioned. But, but you know, I, I don't make that much of it. It's not like we are politically that much involved or something. It, we are pretty much aloof, actually. I recall you telling me that the the abbot of Wapak Nam, which is the, the grandfather temple to the Dhammakai temple, Lung, that was Lung Bu's temple, the rediscoverer of the technique, that the current abbot there is actually supposed to be the head of the Thai Thai Bhikkhu Council, but for whatever reason, he's not. Could you explain that? 
Yeah, so this is a very uh, similar occurrence. So there was a, there is a tendency in, in when Thailand gets politically less stable that the government, especially military governments, they they will try to influence the politics of uh, monastic establishment as well. And they preferred another monk, which was he was that the monk that you mentioned, the current abbot of uh, Wat Praknam, he was at that time, he was, he was part of the monastic top, the monastic top, and uh, he did a lot of good work. And so they, according to his seniority, he should have been the head of the, the Sankaracha or the head of the monastic establishment. But the, the, the military junta preferred another person. So they came in and interfered. But while monks sometimes can be when it comes to politicians telling them what to do, they didn't really want to do what the military junta told them. They said, well, the oldest person is he, so he has to be the leading monk of the monastic establishment, even if you don't like him. So they, and then they, they came up with this bogus accusation. But there's a museum in the temple in Wat Pagnam, and uh, a few years ago, uh, about... 2014, 2013, around that period, Wapagnam actually made an announcement in the newspapers that they wanted, uh, if people wanted to donate things for the museum, they could, because then people would have an extra reason to come to the temple. And and uh, it's a bit odd if we if you think about it, but some people also donated old cars. Just yeah, some journalist has journalist on the. It depends on which political side the journalist is. Some journalists will say it's a wreck <laughs> and the other journalist will say it's an expensive car, <laughs> depending on which side the, the journalist is on. There's this old car, which cannot be used anymore, an old timer, which is offered to the temple and it's put in the museum. And yeah, so it turns out that this car was actually bought. It was bought, even though it couldn't be driven anymore, but it was bought. And there was some accusation that there was no tax paid on it. Now, before the junta came into power, this was a little, it was also in the news, just a short moment. But it was like, uh, okay, they had to maybe find out if the tax had to be paid later on. It was like, uh, it wasn't a big thing. And then the junta came and said <laughs> they used the exact same method that they used with our abbot and said, oh, okay, we revived that case and we're going to want to ask a lot of questions about that particular car. Wow. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, and some that Paratamangalajan, he's very, he he's, was traditionally raised as a novice in the temple. He was in the monastic life from a young, very young age. So he's not a very political savvy man or something like that. He's mostly a very just a very good monk with a very very diligent intention to help him develop Buddhism, but he's not a political actor or something. So he simply says, if that car is a problem, then we just give it to the government. There you are. <laughs> Which only made it worse. So eventually it turns out that the car wasn't bought by some dead chuan. So they couldn't charge him because he didn't buy it himself. There was another monk who was involved in receiving that car from a donor. 
And so they charged him instead. That accusation just keep on running. And they said all the time, yeah, we, the prosecutor would say, yeah, we need to find more information. We cannot do the lawsuit yet. We need to postpone and find more information. So they postponed and eventually the military junta said, yeah, with all these cases coming on, there was only one case, but with all these political cases, we cannot, we cannot have this monk become the head of the monastic establishment. That would be crazy. Even some newspapers in other countries like Singapore or Malaysia, they fell for this. They, act, they completely went along with it. But anyway, most many Thai newspapers, they were very skeptical. They knew that this was a bit fishy. So um, the pro-democracy newspapers who were against the military junta, they, they felt it was very fishy and very odd. Eventually, it turned out that the monk who received the, the car, he was not, they, they could, there was evidence, they could find no evidence that he was aware that the car had not been, that no tax had been paid on the car. This was the specific issue that, was, that the, he was charged with. So he wasn't aware that the donor had not paid tax on the car. So the case was dropped. And in order just to make sure what Paknam and there, they had a, like I said, they were not politically savvy, but they did have a very good lawyer. And the lawyer, he then said, we're going to sue them back. So this happened only, uh, I think only a year ago or something, maybe two years ago. Yeah, two years ago. So they sued them back because they wanted to make sure that a military junta, they sometimes keep information so they can always get you later to make sure that all the information was on the table. So they sued them back for malicious prosecution. And then the junta, they said, we're going to settle. We're not going to pursue this anymore, which, which is odd because they could, they have much more means than what Pagnam has. So eventually, and they said they made a promise that they were not ever going to, to revive the case anymore. So this was the end of it. But some that, some that Paracha Mankalajan was not selected as, as the head of the Sangha. So this is a kind of a political game. But personally, I think it's much worse and a much more serious case that the military junta in Thailand has, has now has, they're not strictly a military junta anymore, the military, yeah. but still not very functioning democracy. So right now, I think it's worse that they have chosen to, to, now, to now have, there's, according to many interpretations right now, the military junta can now select every member of the monastic establishment. Okay, that's not what they say. They say, we leave it up to the king. Okay, but in, in our understanding, we think probably it's mostly the military junta who makes this decision. So this is much worse, even I think, than trying to uh, determine who is the head. Even just selecting every member of the monastic establishment, top of the monastic establishment is now selected by the military junta. So that is just uh, showing that it goes, it continues and continues. And yeah, that is, the problem is not that the military junta is, is I don't think the problem, main problem is that they influence Thai politics. The main problem is that they paralyze it. Mm. But they cause the monastic establishment not to function as it should, which causes Buddhism not to be taught.
it causes it to you know it causes it not to work as it should as it was intended to work so it's not that they ask monks to dress up as military officers or something no of course not they might not even change that much but it causes our temple and the monastic establishment not to work properly as intended yeah. so that's what happens and yeah you can be angry about it but that's just they just want to make sure that everything's stable so that's what they do in their perspective is there any hope in the next few years for this uh junta to go away and for the abbot to be able to reemerge what is your perspective on that i i don't know i don't know the we we may not know exactly where the abbot is but we do know his age and he's getting older now and so what we have to do now is we try to in our temple we try to do all the good things that he has set out he would like everyone in the world to learn about meditation and uh, and he would like everyone in the world to learn about buddhism they don't have to be buddhist but they learn about it and that's what we do we teach ourselves and we teach uh, others so that's the best way to to you know to continue this his padmachayo's intentions to meditate a lot by yourself and to teach others <laughs> and what do you think is the future of the the dhammakaya tradition in the context of of western theravada buddhism difficult because we have very good intentions to try to convey these teachings to the west but there's a lot of cultural differences i think it's more likely that we can see a certain to some extent secular version uh, a lot of people learning about dhammakaya meditation without the full package of thai buddhism and then there will be a number of people who want to know the entire teaching similarly to what happened to goenka becoming mainstream mindfulness and becoming as what some people call mac mindfulness and that is a bit a bit unfair but becoming more widely available in a more secular form and sometimes there is no other way in a in a modern democracy because if you want in the, in the in many schools or in public schools or in in government or semi government semi government uh, institutions you want to have meditation have a role in there you you need to present it it needs to be secular it needs to be accepted by it can be accepted by anyone from any religion so i think that what we have seen the huge rise of research about meditation as we discussed previously before we had uh, before we started to broadcast the huge rise of research about meditation which has gone from one one which kind of became 10 times or 20 times as much as in as 10 years ago or 20 years ago so it's a lot more and a lot more accepted widely accepted mainstream that is only a tip of the iceberg right because most of that re- research was done using the mindfulness as done by the method of john kabat-zinn most of the time 
And that's only one method based on mostly Goenka and some Sri Lankan uh, teachers. But that is only one part of the story. So there's the tip of the iceberg that is about to come up. And we will soon learn that we are learning about a lot of things, uh, a lot of patterns, a lot of parts of the brain that we never knew about before because of meditation. And I'm pretty sure about that uh, because what I see happening now and my experience with teaching people who have practiced mindfulness before is that they feel that mindfulness prepares them for Dhammakaya meditation. And then Dhammakaya meditation deepens it. I'm not saying mindfulness is wrong or not important. I'm just saying that many people come to me and tell me that they find that it has deepened Dhammakaya meditation has deepened that practice and they, they feel it's going very deep. It's one of the deepest methods in the sense that it gives you a profound sense of calm and uh, a sense of wholeness. That, and I, I think I'm inclined to believe that can be found in many Buddhist methods. But I think this method, our method is very intuitive and direct and that appeals to many people who like the simple nature. Like in the words of Lompu, yut pentua samatha, right? So still, stand still, that is meditation. And that if we really come to explain that at a deep level, then people really appreciate that very much. Fantastic, fantastic. Before we end our, our conversation, are there any final words of, of wisdom or anything you would like to share before we close out? Well, we've covered many things. And I think, yeah, I think there's a lot to learn. And when I look back at the life of Lumpu, I'm so impressed. I'm so much impressed. We are about to celebrate his life on the 3rd of February on the teacher's day. And I'm so impressed by the fact that he was always learning and trying out many meditation methods and trying to learn what he could from every teacher. And if everyone in the world would just simply have this, this learning attitude, uh, there's always a lot we can learn and improve ourselves on. Then I think uh, meditation can, can give us many things. And I'm just happy to hear that there is a lot of discussion and interest in meditation and the different traditions. And I hope uh, we can combine our efforts. I'd like to close with an example. In Holland, we have a website right now. I won't advertise it, but it's a website which is a combined effort by many meditation teachers, including Dhammakaya. And we have many meditation teachers teaching, to get, teaching at different times together on the same website. So, so that's, that's just an example of uh, how we can work together and, and we can emphasize that uh, even though we are in a difficult age and we are still have a long process to go before we get rid of the COVID, we can use this time and we can use this energy to practice and learn about meditation as much as we can. Wonderful. Long, Long P. Sander, thank you so much for your time. A more complete perspective on, on things related to our technique and to our temple. You're welcome. I was I feel uh, honored to have been invited. I really uh, like your, what, what shall I call it, broadcast, your series of broadcasts. 
and I very much enjoy it. And I think you're doing a very great job. And I'm happy to that we can meet every now and then. We'll have you back in a couple of months, surely, to, to discuss more Dhamma. So thank, thank you very much, Lopi Sander, and talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. For updates on future guests and shows, you can sign up to our newsletter. As a thank you, we'll send you a 10-minute video on getting out of duality, which has some very, very useful meditation pointers. So go to ryanjburton.com and click on Get Started. Thanks for tuning in and see you on the next episode.